The Good Problem, formerly known as Do Gooder, is a podcast series unpacking the sticky art of doing good. You'll hear me, Lee Matthews, getting curious about the ethics of doing good, the dangers of doing good, and how to do better at doing good. I've been working in the doing good sector for the last 15 years. In that time, I've set up an NGO in Cambodia, won a whole bunch of awards, burnt out, had two children, learned a lot of lessons, set up a consulting company, co-founded the Rethink Orphanages Network, traveled the world, written a book, and spoken to audiences globally. You can find me at www.leematthews.com. The international development sector as we knew it may never be the same again. We've seen field and country office staff of international NGOs sent home, sometimes without a choice in the matter. In the US, we've seen the Peace Corps sent home. In Australia, we've seen the government-funded international volunteering program halted and all volunteers returned home. Personally, as someone who works across both the tourism and international development sectors, I saw all my future work travel cancelled and along with that, the contracts that would take me there. I've also been in discussions with clients about how to best support child protection capacity building, particularly in locations where access to technology and devices are limited and resources are stretched at the best of times. I've also been pondering what all of this means for the sector. Is it equipped to respond? Will funding dry up? And what will happen to the small grassroots NGOs that don't have a funding reserve? To help me make sense of it all, I invited Natalie Jisionka to join the podcast. Natalie is a professor, media professional, and human rights advocate, and has had a very diverse career. She's previously served on the board of Amnesty International USA and is the author of The Travel Mirror column for the Daily Muse. She's a Paul and Daisy Soros fellow and was a Fulbright Scholar in Thailand, researching stateless hill tribes and examining the origins of human trafficking. She was also part of the team who produced the documentary, The Wrong Light, which was launched in 2019. And in late 2019, Natalie also launched Global Elective, a travel and learning platform that explores the future of ethical travel and social impact. Welcome to the Good Problem Podcast, Natalie. Thanks so much, Leah, really happy to be here today. It's a pleasure to have you. To start off, I want to ask you a question I ask all my guests. What does the idea of doing good mean to you personally? I think the idea of doing good is always about sort of self-development and self-awareness. Over the years, I've worked with a number of students, young professionals, and corporations in social impact and doing good. And what I've learned is that mostly doing good is, is about the self. Um, and the impact we make in the field is really about the lens we're looking through. So for most of my career, I've been exploring this idea of what is impact, what does it mean to do good, and through whose eyes is that good defined? Right. And do you think that uh, for you personally, doing good is something that you express 
specifically through your work or is it a is it an idea that kind of flows through the rest of your life as well I want to help people navigate that process but I think day to day I don't necessarily know how much good I do I see myself as an educator uh, someone who advocates and also sticks to a certain set of missions and principles but again I think that I'm here to help people in the process rather than do good in my day-to-day. So when it does happen or when I do make an impact, it's really nice to see. (laughs) But, you know, I I try to focus on um, sort of some of the the goals I have in, in helping people solve complex global issues and then let them kind of figure out what good is for themselves. And I mean, that is doing good in itself. Helping others to do better at doing good is is doing good. Your work is fairly broad and I know you and I have had a couple of discussions and, you know, we share a lot of threads through the same kind of sectors and, and areas of interest through our work. And there are a bunch of topics that we could totally dig into for this podcast, but Today, I'm really keen to discuss the future of social good and development philanthropy in a post-COVID-19 world. You know, while it's very obvious that there's been immediate impacts, we are yet to see what the flow-on effects of this will be. And I know I've been sitting here trying to imagine what the new normal will be for international development, but I'm really keen to know what your thoughts are and Will we be seeing a paradigm shift for the international development sector? I believe we will. I think that for quite some time in the future, development is going to look inward. It's going to look local. I believe that states are going to assert their initiatives in different ways. And I think we're going to see a lot of pullout of different projects that have been going on for a long time, whether that's because funding runs out because funds have been diverted or because people are doing rapid response. I think about the post-COVID world and it's hard to imagine us being in that post state right now. I think this is something we're going to be up against for quite some time ahead. And do you think that kind of shift towards, you know, looking inward will be something that lasts for a long time or do you think we'll slowly move back to the pre-COVID world? I certainly hope this makes us recognize that what happens in the rest of the world matters, that we in fact don't live in a bubble and that we need to be aware of the world and what goes on. I always used to tell my students not only about media literacy but also even though in a place like the United States, we're fairly geographically isolated. What happens in the rest of the world is is so critical, so important. And I think that recognition needs to be ignited again, even though there might be a push to go insular, to sort of lock down, to like shut. I think sharing culture, sharing ideas, sharing innovations is going to be more critical than ever. Yeah. And I've been discussing this with a couple of previous guests, actually, um, Peter Mayers of the Cranlana Centre for Ethical Leadership and Matt Tinkler from Save the Children Australia about that natural tendency of looking in in times of crisis and, and focusing in 
on those closest circles of community and recognizing that, you know, if we can't meet those immediate needs of ourselves and those closest to us, it's very difficult to shift that focused outward until we've addressed those immediate needs. You know, my concern in that space is what does that mean for both development philanthropy and bilateral aid and, you know, looking at the bigger picture, what does it mean for achieving the sustainable development goals, for example? Yeah, you know, I keep thinking about this. And when I have conversations with a lot of friends in the development sector, we've served all over the world. And we joke that if this were in X country, most of us would be flying out to address the issue. But this is a global issue and all our lives are touched in some way. And so I think a lot of us are are flummoxed. You know, those same friends who have worked in Rwanda or Burundi are now working with populations in North Philadelphia and dealing with some of the same things that they were seeing in the field, right? So it's fascinating uh, to see that transference hit so close to home and it it does say a lot about our sector when we think about how far we would go previously to do good when things were going on right in our own orbit. Absolutely. I've said this before with with other guests as well, this is not a regular humanitarian disaster situation where one country or region is affected and the other countries who are unaffected respond and send in teams and money and resources it's it's really unprecedented in that sense and you know I've seen on forums and Facebook groups for aid workers for example of people kind of feeling a little bit lost and not knowing how or having avenues to apply those skills that they've had working in conflict or crisis in their local communities not having those avenues to access or or share those skills Yeah, and I find that fascinating that we have all of this experience and this idea of staying at home can be very stunting. And yet, you know, one has to continue to be innovative and agile. In Philadelphia, we are seeing so many restaurants rise to the occasion and do food deliveries to frontline workers and and also folks who've been laid off it's pretty incredible just to see the community that's been built, but also policy-wise and social program-wise, I think that there's a lot of concern about the rug being pulled out from right under us as far as just everyday services and, and what you can do. So I could see why people are trying to figure out how to apply their skills. And there are some avenues. I mean, certainly here in the United States, we have and continue to have PPE shortages. It pains me that I've had to coordinate with artisans in Thailand and Guatemala and friends who are sourcing directors to get fabric masks here quickly enough so that our frontline workers could cover um, the masks that they have that they were wearing for about a week. Now, some places have gotten better, but as this continues, I think we'll still see a real tension and a real need. Even that idea of sourcing, right? Something so simple that through my work 
I have these contacts to help me do that. So on the one hand, it is very global and I'm using my network. And then on the other hand, it's so local. Never would I think that that day would have come where I am asking artisans to make masks, right? So trying to be agile and innovative has been uh, something else. And also thinking about who is essential, right? And as we talk about aid and organizations and social programming in the development world, what does it mean to be essential? The Peace Corps evacuated and, and pulled out almost, I think, over 7,000 staff around the world. And, you know, in the Peace Corps, it was always about sort of social and cultural exchange, bridging different gaps. And it's changed a lot over the years. But all of these generally young people who wanted to serve, who wanted to do good, are back in the United States, had to leave their communities really quickly, and are not eligible for various social benefits uh, here or to finish out their program, right? So thinking about that, who is essential on the ground when it comes to social good is really fascinating uh, because also in this international world of doing good, who is left, right? Who has stayed on to ride this out? That gets me thinking about, you know, this concept of, you know, all these aid workers have now returned home you know, at very short notice and are probably, you know, equally as concerned about their own well-being and their own families and, you know, their own income and also adding into that mix a sense of, I would say, probably guilt, concern about local project staff in country and also what's going to happen to all the work that they've been doing and the communities that they've been working with. And, you know, this topic's come up a few times in this, in the most recent episodes of this podcast was this is really pushing the localization agenda probably much quicker than anybody anticipated. Yes. And it's definitely something we've been talking a lot about. Will this have positive effects? Because now instead of foreigners local talent on the ground will be necessary and hired, right? Or uh, will this leave a lot of projects abandoned? And it's just too early to tell. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we can't generalize either. I think, you know, there'll certainly be some organizations with really strong local structures and really, you know, good programming that survive and thrive through this time. And, you know, we're really ready for this. And, you know, we will see some projects become abandoned and we will see organizations closed down because of lack of funding. And, you know, I think that's inevitable. Yeah. And I'm curious too, because I think each, you know, Europe, Australia, uh, US all have different sort of approaches when it comes to development. So I'm, I'm really curious to see different strategies on the ground as this unfolds. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to think about, you know, what the impact of the length of this will be. You know, I am sure there are plenty of organizations that can survive with a buffer of funding for maybe six months or so. Um, but there's a whole lot of organizations that 
you know, don't have that. And particularly the smaller grassroots organizations or civil society groups, they just don't have it. Yeah. And, you know, when we talk about funding uh, here in the States, initially, there's a lot of concern about compassion fatigue. And there's also a lot of concern about uh, donor fatigue because of the extraordinary time. Uh, And so people don't seem to be asking for at least six months. But right now, the tone that's being struck is, uh, you know, here's what we're doing on the ground. Here's how we're responding. So it seems like projections are going to be six months to 12 months to really get back on the individual donor wagon here in the United States. Yeah. And I think that's the big unknown. We just don't know how long this is going to last in terms of, you know, the effect on the stock market, which affects the amount of money that philanthropists have to give. We don't know about travel restrictions. I mean, here in Australia, we can't leave. You know, there's no option to leave Australia for many more months to come. It's getting me thinking about philanthropy and kind of what's what's happening. And we're hearing anecdotal stories about what donors are doing. You know, I've heard some good practice where donors are allowing funding agreements to be changed, completely changed to respond to COVID-19 on the ground. But we're also hearing of others that are saying, well, we're not actually giving you the next round of funding until this is over. Have you heard of any examples of good practice or bad practice? What is striking to me right now about our dialogue is in the United States is seeing a lot of human rights organizations and public health organizations certainly sound the call for the world but talk about the U.S. in context. Obviously, American exceptionalism is, and that illusion is is long, long surpassed. But I find it so striking that the same tone when we talk about the global South is being used here. (laughs) And so when it comes to the funding diversions and just responding to different projects around the world, I'm struck by the inward focus and I I can't really predict what's going to happen. What I will say is I have some colleagues in consulting who are saying that their grants are great and things are moving ahead and their projects on the ground seem unstoppable, um, which is actually kind of a relief to hear. Uh, And then the small grassroots organizations I can think of in Honduras uh, that have sort of a U.S. base as well in Thailand. It's going to be interesting to see how they can weather this storm. And again, if they have that agility to, to do so in this, in this moment. I want to kind of touch on tourism, particularly this idea of post-pandemic tourism. I've been rolling it around in my mind for a few weeks now and wondering, are we going to see the traditional post-disaster surge of volunteer tourism. You know, we know from previous disasters that in that vacuum that's created by the disaster, up pops an army of international do-gooders and volunteers who come in and open orphanages and schools and, you know, are really kind of trying to kickstart this. How do we get in front of this to make sure that People are making ethical and responsible choices, but that companies, tourism companies, are offering projects or products that are 
not going to exploit local communities and not going to undo a lot of the hard work we've done in this space. It's so funny because it's hard to fathom that moment, but uh, I was reading from Skift this morning, which is sort of a travel industry leader. They were discussing that cruises could start leaving mid-July and business travel might start up again by September. And that's, they have this timeline and this chart and it's completely unfathomable um, <laughs> at the moment, but it needs to start and it should start. And as we figure this out and navigate this, I'm curious um, how tourism, especially volunteerism, will be impacted. I've been thinking so much about playgrounds and you know, I walk by your local playground and I cannot take my son. It's covered in caution tape, right? As so many are around the world. And it's, I think about all these playground builds, right, around the world. And I know so many folks, even in, in Australia, who had entire organizations that would do playgrounds, playgrounds yeah. right? And it, it's such a strange and obsolete thing or these libraries that will turn into barns, right? Because no one's using them. I wonder if in this era, those micro initiatives will become obsolete and most things will be focused on public health and wellness. I certainly hope that the volunteers who do go out have the proper skills and training to do so and promote that. And I think the challenge is that because we're all in this together, we're looking to each other for different models and we're seeing the the positives and the caveats of both, right? So a lot of people are citing the Swedish model right now. <laughs> a lot of people are looking at India right now. Uh, but until there's sort of a, an understanding of what is actually happening and data is not cherry-picked, I think it'll be interesting to see. I think about so many different non-public health organizations that used to go and give vaccines in Guatemala with students who are not trained in doing this. I hope that the tourism sector will shift to sort of experteering instead of volunteering. And I, I hope to see that if volunteering does continue and there are still people trying to make profit off of this, that they'll focus on highly skilled volunteers. Um, and I think about this now with the influx of different healthcare workers. So, for example, all of these nurses came to New York, you know, but it's, it's no longer to see New York because New York is now shut. <laughs> but they're on the ground. They're experiencing things that they have never seen. Um, and they're going to be impacted for the rest of, rest of their lives. We all are, right? This is a defining moment in our lifetime. So I wonder what this means for social good. And I wonder what this means for volunteers. <laughs> I think about this almost every day. Same, same. And I, I keep wondering, you know, will we, well, I imagine we will see a very different tourism sector on the other side of this. You know, we will see some companies that might not exist anymore. We'll see companies that have shrunk and really had to, you know, come down to a much smaller group of staff and a much smaller group of programs or destinations. And then we might see some that are completely unchanged and just, you know, just hit play from the pause again. But I do think the landscape, at least in the beginning, will be quite different. And 
you know, I, I think with a crisis comes opportunity as well. And within that vacuum that's been created, we'll see new players in tourism come up, new organizations taking advantage of that opportunity. Yeah. So on the one hand, I think people will be hungry to travel more than ever. And I hope that this makes folks curious about the world and certainly celebrate the uniqueness and the experience of moving across borders. On the other hand, the travel industry is going to have to shift dramatically to meet the new normal. And I think we're going to have to engage in really thoughtful processes about the way we travel. So certainly, I hope that this leads to a more ethical and sustainable uh, sort of travel. I, I just saw an article about how Thailand and Southeast Asia has a wonderful opportunity to seize this moment in sustainable tourism and, and environmental tourism. But again, what does that look like? Does tourism look more regional? We know that in the States, study abroad is probably going to be halted for the foreseeable future, but certainly for the fall semester. So what happens to some of those operators that have the study abroad plus social good built in? Again, I think this is going to be all about agility and and thinking. I hope that we can take these ideas that we want to see, that we've idealized and we've talked about regarding sustainability, regarding volunteerism, regarding social good practices, and actually take them with us into this new normal. I don't know how feasible that is, but I certainly would like to see that. Here in Australia, they've been talking about and focusing on local tourism as the first step. And, you know, that's a, that's coming, that messaging is coming from our government here. So, you know, acknowledging that, no, you can't travel overseas, but you know, hopefully we'll see internal borders opening up and internal domestic travel resuming. And it's being floated that they open a, a kind of a bubble between Australia and New Zealand. where Interesting. Any, yeah, and any restrictions. So if you arrive in either of those countries at the moment, uh, you have to quarantine for two weeks, enforced quarantine. But they're saying that we we should be able to hit a point where that doesn't need to happen between Australia and New Zealand. And that will be our first, you know, test of opening up that bubble and then perhaps looking at including Pacific countries in that. So smaller island nations in that bubble. So I will say right as the pandemic was striking, I was about to launch a new travel platform called Global Elective. And the goal was to talk about the complexity of travel, was to talk about ethical travel and highlight voices from the field. So sustainable tour operators, uh, women's travel operators that had a sort of a gender lens, folks who you know, were in the field as development workers and, and came back and talked about what they learned. And, and the goal was to get first-generation and non-traditional travelers out into the world. So we were very excited to, we provided our first scholarship to a young woman in partnership with the organization Malika. She went to Greece to sort of do a training with women at some of the camps and and it was very successful. And then she, you know, she came back and this all happened. And it was like, 
So we were launching this platform, was really excited, and now I'm thinking about the pivot too. He's also about to release a, a graphic novel travel memoir this year, and uh, I think it's still relevant, but again, thinking about that pivot, what does that look like? And that's kind of the buzzword this year. Yeah, absolutely. We're all trying to pivot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So people are certainly going to be hungry for content, skills-based content, expert-hearing content, and nostalgic content. So we are working to figure that out. Right now, we're actually going to explore this idea of what is the future of ethical travel look like and what is the future of of good look like. So we'll see what voices we can uh, collect. Absolutely. So I want to shift the conversation uh, back to you and ask you who is or has been your greatest influence in doing good and why? You know, my, my expertise and my field was always in human trafficking and understanding human trafficking, understanding and sort of discussing the complexities of the issue. As I traveled the world to do my research and my work, it was a lot of the people who really told me that um, there was another way to see things, that my Western linear way of viewing the world was not the only way. And I think every time I encountered that, which was often, I wanted to learn more and more about these layers. So um, while I was working on these issues of trafficking, of refugee issues, of, of human rights, I would say there's just such a host of players that influenced me, but it was never one theorist. It was certainly rarely my colleagues and, and fellow scholars. I learned a lot from them, but it was more people I met on the ground. I think so many times of the way we talk about human trafficking, the way we talk about the sex industry in places like Southeast Asia and the economics of it. And so many of the women and men that I would talk to and work with would really compel me to see things differently. So maybe for me, it's not about doing good. Maybe for me, it's about this quest for unpacking complexity um, and trying to understand it. So the next question is a little bit philosophical. What do you think the greatest social challenge of our time is and, and something that future generations would look back on and wonder what on earth we were thinking or doing? I think right now we need to learn from the world and we need to learn from each other and we need to share resources. Uh, looking in historically has never worked and it's not going to work now. I think we need to learn from the world and understand that we all have these incredible resources and innovations to give and it can't be a competition anymore and when we reach the new normal i hope that the world we leave for our kids is one where it is really about understanding and connection and this is such a fascinating moment because this virus plays on that very thing connection uh, I would also like to see a shift from this mindless busyness. We were in the same room with each other for so long, and yet so many of us weren't present. And so many of us had other things to do or were zoning out on our phones and weren't really there 
for those moments. So very true. I would like to see a moment in a world where we really think about how important connection is and how important uh, learning from the world is. And, you know, it can even start with something simple like food. I think about how many people are cooking right now and how that sense of breaking bread when you're in the field can connect across so many different social barriers. And I I certainly hope um, we can continue to do that. If you could tell the world something and know that every single person would hear it, what would it be right now? (laughs) Oh, that's such a hard one. I think to quote Hamilton, we can't throw away our shot, guys. We can't. (laughs) This is our shot. We're navigating through this and it's messy and complicated, but what it looks like on the other side, and again, what so many writers and influencers and experts are saying right now is what do we take with us? What do we take with us into this new normal? We can leave some of the crap behind (laughs) that's causing a lot of issues in our world. And I even think in the social good lens and the development lens, what would it look like to have entirely local staff and do this work and let communities sort of speak for themselves and advocate for themselves. It's so against our paradigm of development. We are here to develop you, you know, and in that, that um, yes. I think about all the amazing things that are coming out of this, the concerts and the, you know, again, the, the food cultures and, but we cannot throw away our shot uh, because we have to take the good things and the messy things and, and, and work them out. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Tell me about someone who through this time you think is doing a lot of good and why? So I've been thinking a lot about, as everyone is, uh, you know, my, my husband's a, a physician. So day to day, I'm sort of dealing with the clinical end and the public health end. Um, but I am thinking of one person. So there's a restaurant in Philadelphia called Kalia, and it is run by a chef named Kunok. She's from Trong in Thailand, and she just makes the most amazing, amazing, just like you're sitting right there, Southern Thai food, unheard of in Philly. Like this has just changed the industry uh, as far as bringing good Thai to Philly. She has been cooking hundreds of meals every day. So first she started something called Philly Family Meal, which was just giving meals out to all the folks who've been laid off in the restaurant industry. And Philly is a small city, but it has so many incredible restaurants within its borders, right? Um, So many people got laid off when this happened. So giving out these free meals and then feeding frontline health defenders with hundreds of meals to all our various hospitals. And she's just been incredible. And what is amazing is that she is bringing her culture and she's bringing the world to people who may never have experienced it before, right? So when you have these meals, you know, you may get like an amazing pad thai or you may get some really unique fish curry you don't know but she just inspires me because she has not missed a beat 
during this moment. What a beautiful story. Yeah. 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 I think right now the cultures we have and the cultures we carry with us into our adopted homes or into our, our homes that we've been here for generations, like the world, it's, it's extraordinarily diverse and, and rich in culture. And I think, I think sharing that is just so important right now. For sure. Natalie, where is your favorite place on earth? You know, that, that's so interesting um, because I, I've started to think a lot about home and, and home is certainly who you're with. I think there is a lot of displacement going on right now. So home is your people, but also places, you know, Chiang Mai, Trinidad, each place gives me something that I take with me. I would have to say Chiang Mai. As I go through my work, I realize how much um, the time I spent there has influenced me in both my approach to organizations, because certainly it's flooded with volunteers, right? Yeah. And also my love of textiles and my love of food. Uh, And again, that's changing too, right? The city has changed drastically over the last 10 years. So what does new look like in some of our favorite places in the world? It's, It's hard to think about. It is hard to think about and imagine how they're changing right now as well. Are you reading at the moment? Are you you finding time to read? So I have an extensive cookbook collection. Um, I always collected cookbooks because no matter who would come into my home, I could pull a cookbook down and say, hey, you know, tell me how you do it. Tell me if this is actually the right way. I also am really passionate and curious about the authenticity of food. So who has the right to cook what food? Who has the right to profit off of it, represent it, and share it? And so even pre-pandemic times, I would be reading cookbooks because there's always stories in the food. And that's even what my travel memoir is largely about, (laughs) these experiences through the lens of food. I am reading... The Overstory, which is a book about trees. (laughs) And I think, you know, we're all, we're all a little bit burned out from the news. Um, And so in order to process all the information, reading something very different is necessary at this time. Absolutely. Absolutely. So do you generally listen to podcasts? I do. I do. Not recently, but I do. Yeah. What's a favorite? Tell us about a favorite podcast. I really like Getting Curious with Jonathan Van Ness. (laughs) He's amazing in the way he can approach a very simple issue and, again, look at it through a microscope with the experts he brings on in a very fun way. That is my most recent one, actually. I also had to listen to a lot of new motherhood podcasts in the last year because I have a one-year-old. So uh, I listened to a lot of uh, Dr. Alexandra Sachs uh, podcasts. Hers is called The Longest, no, it's not called The Longest Shortest Time. I I would have to look up the name, but a lot of motherhood. It's a big learning curve. (laughs) So Natalie, thank you so much for taking the time to come on this podcast. I really appreciate it. I know you're in, uh, you're displaced yourself. You're in a, you're in a different state than where you're used to. And it's a very stressful time and you are in an environment that's particularly, you know, being impacted hard by COVID-19. So I appreciate you taking the time out of your day to talk to me and share your 
wonderful insight and, and thoughts about what we might see in the future. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm really honored to be here. And I'm so glad that you are continuing to do this because again, good will change and we can define it as we go along. Thanks for listening to the Good Problem Podcast. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe and share. Head to www.leematthews.com to find out more.